Welcome back. In this section, we're going to look at unregistered trademarks, right? Like the previous section on industrial designs, we only look at really few pages in, the, in this section of the textbook that's on this, but I thought it was important to kind of have a broad overview of it, even if we don't have the time to cover these things in as much detail as we do copyright, registered trademarks, and patents, right? So what's a trademark? What's an unregistered trademark? Well, it's a trademark, right? So it has to meet the same conditions generally under the Trademark Act, right? So that's going to be our starting point. And we're going to look later on at, at why that's the case, right? And more specifically, right, it's going to be a distinguishing feature that is non-functional. And so, right, this distinction that we elaborated in the section on industrial designs is kind of helpful here because, again, we're not concerned with functional characteristics. The simplest example of a, an unregistered trademark is going to be a logo. Right? It's a feature of the product you're buying that is not functional. Right? Having a logo on it is not functional. Right? It doesn't make something, you know, a fork or a piece of clothing. It's just there, either on the thing or on the packaging for you to recognize it as a customer and know what it is. And so it is distinguishing. Right? It helps you know what you're buying and helps you know that you're buying from the company with a reputable reputation that you want to be buying from, but it's also non-functional, right? And what's the rationale between, behind that, right? We'll, we'll say there are two, right? So first, right, we don't want to confuse customers, right? So people should legitimately expect, right, that when they're going to go to the store and buy something and recognize it by its logo or by the, the you know the series of colors on the packaging that it's actually what it is and people have a legitimate interest in that being protected by the law and a competitor not doing something that's slightly different to kind of squirt the rules and and confuse customers into buying something that they would not otherwise buy and the second rationale we'll call just protecting business interests. And again, right, when we look at intellectual property law in general, particularly business-minded, right, intellectual property law is concerned with protecting generally the rights of businesses, right, of, of companies or individuals who, who invent things or produce art or whatever it is and to whom we give a monopoly, right? To protect the interest, the commercial, the economic interest, whatever you call it, of people who we think should have a monopoly on whatever they're creating. So here we're still protecting business interests in a way and the way we're protecting business interests is really by saying you've built up this reputation over time, right? You've invested time, money, advertising into building this reputation so that customers can recognize your product. 
right? It's not cheap for everyone to recognize your thing just by the color or the, the type of packaging and therefore that it's a legitimate business interest and to push that further, right? If someone were to use that, it would kind of be fraudulent, right? You'll recall I used that F-bomb in a previous section. I told you it's kind of fraudulent, right? And that remains true, right? And so the rationale is that it's not appropriate for a competitor to use this reputation that you've built over time to sell their own stuff illegitimately, right? And how are unregistered trademarks protected under Canadian law? As I said, they're protected under the Trademarks Act, right? And of course, right, it's probably not even worth, you know, writing it down, but there's no registration, hence why it's called an unregistered trademark. And how do we protect that? Well, we protect that under tort law. And you'll recall my introduction of what tort law is, right? Tort law is extra contractual liability, basically a reason for you to sue someone where you don't otherwise have a contract, generally because that person has done something wrong. The general elements are someone did something wrong and that caused, that's the second element, you harm. That's the third element, right? And it can be a broad range of things. Someone was negligent, someone lied to you. Someone took your money by telling you something that was wrong, whatever it is, right? And what we have here is a tort called passing off. And of course, as the name suggests, it's the tort of passing off your stuff to someone else's or the other way around. Either way, it's about you, the merchant, taking advantage illegitimately of the reputation of another merchant. And even though that's a tort, right, and we have this province in Canada called Quebec where there is not the common law, right, where torts don't exist. We have extra contractual liability more broadly, but there isn't this common law system of torts, right, of, of wrongs or actionable wrongs that were developed by the courts generally in England a long time ago. But you're told that that's still true in Quebec. And so the tort of passing off exists in Quebec under what we call 1457 liability, which is the article in the civil code 1457, which essentially codifies negligence, right? Which says any person is liable for whatever they cause as harm to another by their own actions. And that falls under this in, in the broad sense that it falls under, you know, civil liability, under extra contractual liability. And so even though it's a tort, it exists across Canada and more importantly, right? It exists across Canada with the same conditions. Um, and as we'll see, that then became a little bit less relevant because eventually it was codified. So we'll get there. Now, what's the distinction between a registered trademark? Well, as the name suggests, right, a registered trademark is, well, registered. And the process of doing that is actually interesting, right? So you'll, you'll realize that we never really talked about what's involved in registration. I told you, you probably have to hire a lawyer and fill the paperwork. That's true, but the process is actually pretty complex and that's why you have to hire a lawyer, especially if you're filing a patent application, right? And why is that? It's because they're not just putting down your name on the registry without checking it, right? They're actually checking that whatever you're saying makes sense 
with varying levels of scrutiny and varying tests depending on the type of intellectual property you're seeking, right? A patent would probably be the more complex one because you're, you're saying some pretty, you know, intense stuff, right? You're saying you came up with something that's brand new and that can be massive, right? If you come up with a drug for cancer, right? Or to give a more specific example, if you come up with a drug for treating cholesterol, well, you might as well have made $70 billion. And so the government, before giving you the exclusive right to sell that, because you've invented it, kind of wants to check that what you're saying is true, right? And so the registered trademark, if you want your trademark registered, well, there's going to be a process where A, the government's going to look into what you're saying, as we'll see in the next section, and B, people are going to be able to oppose it. And so it's going to go on to, you know, a list where people are going to be able to say, well, the government authorized this, but I don't think it's legit, right? Because it infringes upon my thing or whatever it is, right? There's going to be this opposition process and therefore the resulting inscription kind of has legitimacy and doesn't have to be proven over and over again when you sue people. And that gets me to the main advantage of having a registered trademark, of course, is that you don't have to prove the elements that we're going to see under passing off. In fact, the only thing you have to prove is infringement, right? Your trademark is established and as we'll see, under passing off, you have to establish your trademark in some way, right? So if it's registered, your trademark's established, you just have to show that someone committed an infringing action. You don't have to show, right, that you've built up the business reputation that allows you to have an unregistered trademark. And so that's the advantage of registration um, under the Trademarks Act. Another reason you're given, another two reasons you're given not really important is that Registered trademark, right, um, generally uh, speaking, can cover fewer things. And so one of the advantages of an unregistered trademark is that it might cover things that might not otherwise be registered. For instance, the sound up until the, the, the regime was modified, or still now, you know, how a store looks, for instance. That wouldn't be covered under the registered regime but it might be under passing off if, if your store is a very important part of your reputation. The other thing, of course, under tortious liability is that you can sue more kinds of people and so it's simpler in cases where you don't have two businesses competing, right, where you have nonprofits, universities, whatever it is, to use passing off. So these are the advantages, right? And what's important, right, you have this sanction on constitutional dimensions as they call it, Basically what it says is, right, the federal government controls everything, right? So of course the federal government can control registered trademarks because it has jurisdiction not over this under the Constitution, like most areas of intellectual property law. But this is tortious liability, and generally that's up to the individual provinces, even though the principles might be the same. But the Supreme Court said, don't worry about that, the federal government is good. So the federal government's allowed to regulate this to the extent that it wants to create an overarching consistent regime that covers both registered and unregistered trademarks. And that gets me to the important part of this so-called constitutional dimension and that is that indeed the same act applies. And therefore the rules generally speaking are going to be the same. 
whether you have a non-registered trademark or a registered trademark, you are subject to the rules that are in the Trademark Act, at least most of the rules that are there. And so essentially, once you've proven it, you get similar protections, right? And um, as you're told more specifically, um, that generally applies to sections one through 12 of the Trademarks Act. So what is the tort of passing off? Well, there are three major elements, right? We'll, we'll call the first one goodwill, right? We'll get back to what that means. The second element is going to be um, misrepresentation. And the third one is going to be damage. You can see my handwriting gets better as I go down. Um, so the first element is goodwill. What is goodwill? Basically, it's an accounting concept, right? For the value of a company that's not related to its economic value, right? So typically, right, you have a company that makes money, makes profit, then they accumulate that profit into assets, right? And when you subtract the assets and the liabilities, you get well, the value of the company on paper. But what if someone pays more than that for the company? Well, the rest is what we call goodwill. It's essentially an accounting concept for the value of the company that is intangible, right? As a general rule, that doesn't show up in your financial statements until someone buys you for more than your worth basically. Then you can depreciate it and do all sorts of cool things with the Income Tax Act. But that's not important for our purposes here. So goodwill, let's just call that reputation, right? The value of your business that's not based on hard assets, that's not based on money in a bank account, buildings, whatever it is, but that's this intangible, harder to measure value of, of the reputation you've built with customers, right? Second element, right? Misrepresentation. Someone tries to use your good reputation to sell their own stuff. That's kind of fraudulent, right? That's what misrepresentation is. Misrepresentation is representing something that is not true, right? Representing something as something else. The third element is damage. As you're told, basically that element is pretty weak because it doesn't have to be actual damage. It can be potential damage, right? And you have the case of um, Apotex in the textbook that basically discusses, right, um, that basically discusses this criteria in greater detail. The other things I wanted to tell you, though, before we move on, right, is that first, right, that the tort of passing up was what they, what they call codified in the Trademarks Act. And so, as I said, initially it was a tort. It was a common law action, right? It was developed by the courts. And then, you know, the elements became well established as we went. That's how the common law works. And then, you know, everyone applied them, but they, they were initially created by the courts. That was codified. And so the government said, we'll write it down. And we saw that in copyright law quite a bit, right? That doesn't really change the rules most of the time because the government just writes down what the courts have already said, either for greater certainty or because the government doesn't want the courts to go rogue and keep 
evolving the concept in a way it doesn't want to, right? So now it's codified under section seven and so your passing off doesn't rely on the common law criteria, but really relies on the section seven criteria, which are the exact same, but originate in a statute, not in judicial precedent. The other thing that I wanted to tell you, right, is that it is only for um, what we'll call um, competitors, right? And so the customer cannot sue. That's kind of weird, right? Because what you're saying is you misled a customer into buying your product. So why can the customer not sue, right? Well, A, the customer isn't gonna sue because they don't have any money or incentive really to sue because they got the wrong chocolate bar. But more importantly, right, there's this goodwill aspect, right? And so even though this is about customer welfare, even though this is about customers finding the right thing, right? Customers having the legitimate expectations of what they're buying met. There's also a business interest in the business not wanting their reputation stolen for profit by someone else. And so it kind of makes sense that only competitors are allowed to sue. That's a good thing to know. And the court draws this distinction in the Apotex case, which you read, of saying, even though, right, it's a competitor that can sue, that doesn't mean that the regime is meant to, pr to protect competitors, right? So when you go to court, you're still protecting both of these things. You're still protecting customers. So it's a matter of who can bring the lawsuit. It's not a matter of whose interests are being protected because both of their interests are being protected. And the fact that only the competitors can sue doesn't mean that the interests of the customers are not being protected. And so, when you look at the case, right, the court goes into those various concepts, right, defines goodwill and says, right, it's kind of odd that we have this business regulation that was created by the court where we intervene in competition, right, because someone stealing your chocolate bar packaging might be great for competition on paper, might drive down the price of your chocolate bar, right, they might steal your reputation and then sell it for half the price. The court says, no, 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 that's not really competition. It's unfair competition. And therefore, it's not something we protect. In fact, right, our business patriotism is much better protected by preventing people from doing unfair competition, not allowing them to do it. And, and there's also, um, to some extent, this, um, this, this, parallel with antitrust law, which we did not learn about, right? But I told you before that there's this rule, basically, that buying up all your competitors is illegal. To be more precise, though, buying up all your competitors is not in itself illegal, generally speaking. It becomes illegal because you use that to abuse customers, to jack up the price, and so forth. Well, there's a parallel there right? In any trust, right? The government is intervening in business, right? The government is preventing you from buying up all your competitors. In fact, the government can come in and literally break up your company. If you've heard break up the banks in the 2008 financial crisis or break up Facebook more recently, that was literal. 
the government does have the power to come in and break up your company. The, the government did that with Standard Oil back in the old days, right? Um, but basically, there's this idea of the government, right, intervening in business, but for business's sake. So to favor competition, to favor the proper way of the business being run, right, the, of, the, of the business sector, you know, competing against itself and doing good things for customer because ultimately competition and capitalism are supposed to be about customers, right, getting a better service for cheaper or better product for cheaper and therefore these government interventions, even though they are government interventions, right, actually favor these same goals. The other thing that the court tells you, right, is that this is a, um, this is a, a, um, a standard, generally, that is going to apply to the reasonable customer. That's not surprising, right? Usually, right, if you want to apply a standard to a hypothetical person, right, would, would a hypothetical person feel that this is misrepresentation, right? Would they buy the wrong chocolate bar, in other words, right? Well, the answer is typically the normal person, but a reasonable one, right? So a normal person, but that acts the right way according to the law and is reasonably discerning. The court also says that the standard is going to vary depending on what you are buying. And that's interesting, right? Obviously, it's going to be hard to convince you to, convince you to buy a fake Mercedes because, you know, if you're going to spend $50,000 on a car, chances are you're going to do your homework and it's going to be hard to stick you with a fake Mercedes. On the other hand, you know, sticking you with a fake chocolate bar, you're buying in a hurry and you've just, you know, tanked up your car. Well, that might be easier. And therefore the standard, right, of how, you know, investigative the customer is going to be is going to vary depending on the product that you are selling. An interesting aspect of this, right, which is totally unrelated and just me going off, um, is that, well, two interesting aspects actually, right? So, as we said, right, people have to be competitors. What's interesting about this, right, is for instance, someone in another industry isn't generally going to be a competitor, right? So if, let's say, Balenciaga makes a fake Gucci bag, they're competitors, right? They're trying to sell the same bag. And even if they were trying to sell a different bag, they would be competitors because, you know, they sell clothing or bags or whatever it is, right? And even if they're in related industries, it's fine. But what if you have a Gucci restaurant, right? And Gucci doesn't have a trademark. Does that infringe upon Gucci's trademark? And the answer is probably not. Because as a restaurant, right, you might be, you know, using the reputation, but you're not really a competitor, right? And so you're not using your reputation to sell bags, you're just using your reputation, period. And that might be allowed in most cases. The other thing that I think is interesting to think about from a more kind of philosophical standpoint is how this is really for rich companies, right? What's interesting here is that the law does the opposite of, of protecting, you know, the little guy, right? By saying you have to have goodwill, you're saying you have to have a reputation. And you have to have a reputation that is so great that people recognize you. And a reputation that is, you know, so great that it's worthy of protection under the law. And so this is a regime, quite interestingly, that was entirely set up 
to protect large companies, essentially, or companies that have shown goodwill, and generally that means big and, and, and profitable companies. And what's even weirder about that, right, is this registration thing. Because I told you for industrial designs, right, it makes sense to require registration because an artist is not going to have a lawyer that's going to tell them to register their stuff. It's not even going to cross their mind. And so it would be unfair for people to have to register their art. Thereby, we have copyright that doesn't have to be registered. Conversely, right, for an industrial design, you're talking about a company that makes art for business. It's going to mass produce it, right? So kind of legitimate to assume that a company is going to have a lawyer and a bunch of contracts and is going to be told or should reasonably look into whether it needs to register its industrial design. What's interesting here is we have a regime that doesn't require registration, but not for the same reasons. In fact, I'm not sure for what reason, right? Aside from what I've told you, right? We have a regime that's for big companies, but conversely to the rationale that I think I've exposed in the previous ones, in the previous capsules, right? That doesn't, you know, base this off helping people who wouldn't otherwise know that their stuff needs to be registered or people who couldn't be expected to know that their stuff needs to be registered.